does the book of Revelation have to do with our study of Esther? Well, that's a great question. I'll try to show you this morning pretty quickly. Um, But as you turn there, have you ever Googled um, Armageddon or the Battle of Armageddon? Uh, I'm not recommending it. In fact, I would advise you probably not to. Um, You can get some crazy stuff. Of the top ten results, though, when you Google that, the uh, top six or the first six are, are in reference to the movie Armageddon, the one with uh, Bruce Willis and the Aerosmith theme song. And, and then there's one, the, one of the, the top ten results that comes up is a page provided by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, it's their thoughts on the last battle um, on, on the earth but in human, human history. Um, and I would probably recommend the, uh, the ones with Bruce Willis over, uh, over that one. Uh, but then the other, the other ones that are there are, are about the, the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, if you're anything like me, maybe when you picture that, the Battle of Armageddon at the end of, of time, that uh, you have in your mind this massive eschatological battle, um, you know, where, where everything's going to come to an end, this cataclysmic type event. And uh, actually on the screens, uh, there's, a, there's a picture I have in the slides this morning before we get into the text. Um, um, if, if, I think the other room, um, you can throw it up on that screen too. Um, Harrison's closing the doors for us, but when he gets back, there's a picture there and it's the, uh, the Valley of Megiddo. And I, I was there in February before all this COVID-19 stuff happened. And, um, we were overlooking that Valley and that's where it's expected that this, va- this battle will be the Valley, the Valley of Megiddo. And, um, I suspect that when many of us think of it, you, you maybe are struck with, with fear or dread when you think of this, like, end of time, world battle. But I hate to ruin the blockbuster hit sort of a vibe that you may picture when you read about this in the scriptures, but, but the, 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 the picture that we're given in the Bible is very different. Armageddon is going to be over before it started. There's going to be a lot of thunder and a lot of awe, but not the sort that you would maybe be thinking. Um, in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, uh, the final two battles here between good and evil are revealed to us. In Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, Jesus, Jesus is there and he's on a horse and he never even has to dismount. Uh, he destroys his foes while sitting on his horse. So I, I hope in the day and age we live, if the media is going to cover this, that the media, that they're there with cameras ready because it's, it's going to be going down fast. That's the image that we have. And then in, in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, there's this one last massive gathering of the forces of evil, and it's described for us. If you're, if you're there with me in Revelation 20, in verse 9, we'll, we'll start reading. It says this, They, those evil forces, marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the, the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And just like that, it's over. Like the, the, the big boxing match that's, that's advertised for months ahead of time or the, the UFC fight that's been hyped for, for months and then it's over with with one punch. Like the knockout comes with one swing. It's, it's, it's over. All of that build up for, for this. And it's done. Now, I have no intention of swaying you to a particular uh, eschatological view or end times view this morning. That's not the point. I'm simply pointing out that the average person, I think, would believe that this is going to be this massive war that rages on when really it's the battle that never was. In Revelation 19, in, in Revelation 19 the enemies of God are gathered 
And the reason they're gathered is so that the birds can gorge on their flesh. And then in Revelation 20, the enemies surround the, the, the saints just to be scorched like an overcooked marshmallow at a campfire. And it's, it's done. And in contrast to that, the, the glory of God is put on display and, and, and praise to God, the saints who are his people, they go on to dwell with Jesus and they, they live in eternal glory and joy. And that's it. It's, that's the end. It's the battle that never was. And you may wonder, what in the world is, is Matt doing in Revelation to finish up the end of Esther? Well, in Esther, just a little bit of backstory if you've not been with us. Between the third month, uh, when Mordecai's edict to save the Jews was issued, that's what we saw last week in chapter 8, and the twelfth month, where Haman's original decree, the death decree against the Jews, that's the third month and the twelfth month, there's some time there that, that, that went, went by, and that there's some time that was, that was, that was going on here, and, and it's possible... That just like in Revelation, the enemies of God's people had hyped themselves up for this epic battle, right? They had months to prepare for it. Remember, these are the ancestral enemies of the Jews, the Amalekites, the Agagites. They they have hated the Jews for generations. So this has been a long time coming. They're finally going to squash those nomadic slaves for good, those Jewish nobodies. They're about to teach them a lesson. Maybe they're even making plans. You know, they've got months to, to plan. So maybe they're just gathering around the Jewish homes thinking, mm-hmm, when we, when we destroy them, I'm plundering that house. I'm going to get that big screen TV. I'm going to plunder that house. And I'm going to get that Rolls Royce over there. Maybe they're making those sorts of plans for what it's going to look like when they plunder the Jews after this massacre. But then, just like in Revelation 19 and 20, there's going to be no victory for the evil forces. For those Amalekites and Agagites that are going to strike uh, God's people. In fact, it's all going to turn on its head, as we've seen countless times in the book of Esther, such that the enemies of God's people are on the run, suffering a worse fate than they hope to carry out against God's people. Now, before you get too excited and start shouting amen, Ezekiel thirty three eleven tells us that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so neither should we. We should absolutely... Glorify God by saying, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. That's Revelation 19, 1 and 2, by the way. But at the same time, we should, we should grieve that there are those who are going to perish. And not just death, physical death, but eternal death forever and ever, Revelation 20 says. Because they foolishly raged against God and his people in rebellion. And so Revelation 9 and 10 this morning is more than just the end of Esther's story. It's a reminder to us that God's going to win. He's going to win and his people are going to be preserved and his enemies are going to be punished and they're going to perish forever and ever. So we have a lot of text this morning, all of chapter 9 and and chapter 10 is only three verses, so not a lot there, but uh, a lot of text this morning. Before we read, though, uh, let me just remind you, Esther has secured uh, a place for her and her cousin Mordecai. so that they can enact this, this, this edict and save the Jewish people. And, uh, and so what they've done, they've, they've issued this new decree. Um, because remember, uh, the king's edict cannot be revoked. So Haman's decree is still in place. Anybody that wants to kill a Jew on this, in this month of Adar, they can. They can kill the, the Jewish people and plunder their goods. That's what the edict said. But this new edict says the Jews can fight back. Before that wasn't a possibility, before it would have been rebellion to resist the death decree. Now there's an opportunity for them to fight back. The new edict, it's in verse 11, 
of chapter 8, if you want to see what it says, and if you go back to last week, chapter 8, it says, The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So, what we see here with these two edicts is that on the same day, in the 12th month, the same day, the 13th day, um, that the Jews... Although they could be killed, they have a new edict that allows them to fight back. Chapter 9, the chapter we're in this morning, picks up on that day. It's fast-forwarded for us to the month of Adar. So let's pick up chapter 9. We'll read a, a good chunk here at the beginning, verses 1 through 19. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edicts were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought, to, sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was, in, was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more powerful and more powerful. The Jews struck their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased with those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, and here we go, Parshandatha, and Dalphin, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmashta, and Arisai, and Eridai, and Vizatha. Mm. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. And that very day, the number of those killed in, the, in, in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? And it shall be granted you. And what further requests, uh, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according um, to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, and a decree was issued in Susa. And the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day they rested and made, uh, made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day, and they rested on the 15th day, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as the day for feasting and gladness, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. The very day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to conquer the Jewish people, 
the very reverse is what the text says. The reverse of that happened. The tables were turned on Haman's cutthroat mob. Verse 6 tells us that 500 men were killed in the capital. Uh, Verse 16 tells us that 75,000 were killed across the, the rest of the Persian Empire. And between those two numbers, between those two tallies, we have another interaction between Xerxes and Esther. Xerxes has heard the reports from all around the, the, the city streets and what's happening in the capital, the, the, the citadel. And like the sociopath that he is, he's not alarmed by this. He's not concerned by this. In fact, he's quite impressed. If you look at verse 12, you can almost hear him say, well, golly gee, what a show, right? 500 have been killed here. Do tell how many have been killed everywhere else. You can see he's almost fascinated with this. And then unprompted, almost like a reward for this carnage, he tells Esther that she can have anything she wants. What do you want? He's so proud of his bride that has brought so much, much death and destruction. He doesn't care who it is or why. This is, uh, seems to be in keeping with, with uh, Xerxes' character and what we've seen of him through the rest of the study of, of the book of Esther. And then what Esther says in response to this offer from King Xerxes is, is pretty dark. And, and by many commentaries, considered maybe Esther's darkest hour or worst look, maybe, in the whole book. She asks for anything, and she asks for more bloodshed. That, that in Susa, the citadel, the capital, that, that it be extended for another day so that, so that more bodies might pile up. And so that specifically, the sons of Haman, the ten sons, might be hung up and publicly humiliated beside their father on the gallows. And we're sort of left going, huh? Like that, that doesn't seem right. Like we're feeling like she, she wants more bloodshed. So how do we square with this? Well, how do we understand this? As we study a text like this from thousands of years ago, what, what in the world would this be included in Holy scripture? And what are we to learn from it as God's people today, as Christians today? I have three observations for us really quickly. And um, I think it would help us to understand what's going on here in the text and in the rest of, of, of Esther chapter 9 and 10. The first observation is this, is that we see holy war in Esther's ending. We see holy war in Esther's ending. Now to understand that, we need to think for a moment about the biblical concept of holy war. Um, uh, th- this is something we've covered before here at Poplar Spring, but it's been a couple years ago when we were studying the book of Deuteronomy. If you were here with us then in the study of Deuteronomy, you may remember it. If you're new to Poplar Spring... Maybe a, a concept or something you've not thought about, at least the biblical concept of holy war in some time. But we know that's what's going on here in the text because three times, verse 10, 15, and 16, the writer tells us explicitly that the Jews laid no hand on the plunder. That's not just an accidental detail that shows up. It's not like a broken record. He just keeps hitting that same detail again and again like, okay, we got it. They didn't touch the plunder. No, that's intentional. That's there for a reason. Now, if you remember Mordecai's decree, I just read to you from chapter 8, verse 11, it allowed for them to take plunder, to take the enemy's goods once they've killed them, to to go in and take what's theirs. The edict would have allowed for that. So the question is, why didn't they do it? Certainly Persian law would have allowed for it. So why didn't they? The Jews didn't touch the plunder because they understood the conflict that they were engaged in was not first and foremost political. It was first and foremost spiritual. That what they're doing there has roots in what God had commanded them uh, generations before. Now to understand that, we need to do some backstory. I don't want you just to take my word for that and be like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. So to see this understand and to understand this concept of holy war in Esther's ending, I want to look at it in three ways. Holy war in the Old Testament, 
as quickly as we can, holy war at Calvary, and then holy war in the life of a believer, of a Christian. So first, holy war in the Old Testament. There's an idea in the Old Testament that Israel's God's chosen nation. He put his hand on them when he didn't have to. He chose them to be his people. And as a result, he would bless them. So when you hear that, think the the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis uh, Genesis chapter 12. You think uh, of the way that he promised to be with them. But that also, as as in connected to that, as he was at his as he would bless them, he would use them as his hand of judgment against rebellious pagan nations. Um, of people, rebellious people, wicked people. You see this in Genesis 15, Genesis 15, verse 16. Uh, immediately after the Abrahamic covenant, God tells Abraham, Genesis 15, 16, and they, the Israelites, God's people, shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now that's important because it's telling us that God's judgment is not just willy-nilly. Like, oh, I'll destroy these people today. I'll destroy, ah, I feel like destroying these people today. No, God's, his, his, his providence, his sovereignty is such that everything he does is calculated. That when you rebel against a holy God, it's not just uh, some casual thing that you can take lightly. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is, is long-suffering and patient and he deals with us even when he doesn't have to. But... A nation's iniquity is completed when God says it's completed and he brings his judgment in his timing. And here he says that Israel will be used by him to bring that judgment. That's Genesis 15, 16. Well, there's another aspect to this too in Genesis chapter 14. So between the Abrahamic covenant and this idea that God's going to use Israel to judge pagan nations, we have this, this, this interesting concept that's added in Genesis 14. Where Abraham goes to, to war to rescue his nephew Lot. Remember Lot's gotten into some trouble. And he, so he goes to, goes to rescue him and he comes home victorious. And when he gets home, he, the, the king of Sodom offers Abram the, the plunder. And this is what Abram says. In, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 21, Abram refuses lest Sodom be said to be the source of his prosperity. Genesis 14, verses 21 through 23. So in other words, Abram will not take the plunder, even though he's gotten his his nephew back. That's what he went to accomplish. God's used him to destroy the wickedness in Sodom. But he doesn't take the plunder because he doesn't want it to even be a thought that he's he's prosperous and he's benefiting because of Sodom's wickedness. That decision sets the pattern for what Israel would follow from then forward. When they enter into the promised land, that's the pattern they follow. They would touch nothing of the possessions of the enemies. Um, when they've conquered them. You think about that. So they, they defeat, here's a practical example or an illustration of that. They defeat Jericho, right? Most of us know that story. The walls of Jericho come tumbling down under Joshua's leadership. And then they move on to face the little bitty, little bitty town of Ai, A-I, and they're whooped. I mean, they're just, it's just handed to them. The Israelites are just spanked and sent on their way. Loss of life. Why is that? Well, if you remember the story, it's because Achan had stolen some of the plunder from Jericho for himself and he'd hid it under his tent. He was keeping some of the goods for himself. He was violating this principle in Genesis 14. And only when Achan and his family were put to death, were executed, were judged, could they go on and defeat this little bitty town of, of Ai, Ai. Holy war required that Israel become the vessel that God would use to bring his judgment against a people for their wickedness, for their immorality. But Israel, as God's weapon, as God's hand of judgment, were to destroy them for their sin, but they were not to profit in any way for that other nation, from that other nation's wickedness. 
Now, back to the book of Esther. You may remember that from the beginning of our study in the book of Esther, the whole book of Esther, the story, comes about as the consequences of a failed holy war, right? Like, if you've forgotten that, let me jog your memory this morning. If you remember King Saul, that's Israel's first king, uh, he was supposed to. He was mandated by God. God had charged him with destroying the Amalekites. If you remember them, it's another big, long place and name that we, we, don't, we don't talk about every day. They're led by King Agag. And they had kicked Israel at a time when Israel was already down. They were suffering. They were hurting. This, the Amalekites come in and, 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 and defeat them and sack them when they're already hurting. And so God says, you'll be judged for this. And so he commands Saul, the king of Israel, to go in and, and conquer the Amalekites and specifically to kill King Agag. Well, Saul, like Achan back at Jericho, he failed to do that. He failed to uphold God's command and, and be obedient to God and these principles of holy war. And so what did he do? He let Agag live. We'll see the consequences of that in a second. And he plundered the enemy's best possessions, the two things he was not supposed to do. And so the prophet of God, Samuel, goes to the king and he says, Hey, the, the king sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy the wicked people, the Amalekites. Why did you disobey the Lord? That's First Samuel 15, verses 18 and 19. Then Samuel says, why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Because of this failure to obey and execute holy war, God's way, Agag is still alive. And Saul is told, you'll, you'll no longer be Israel's king. And you'll die for these, these sins. Now, fast forward to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 9, we meet Saul's descendants, King Saul's descendants, Esther and Mordecai. And they're in captivity in a pagan land in Persia. Because of the consequences of sin. Because of disobeying God. And then you have Haman. You remember him. He's an Agagite. He's a descendant from King Agag, who King Saul let live. So all these consequences, it's all connected. This is one story that's being told to us in Esther. And if you don't understand the history of it, you don't understand this, the intertwined nature of this. Haman's an Agagite. And he's trying to carry out genocide against the Jews in Persia. Further consequences of King Saul's disobedience. Esther and Mordecai, though, are trying to flip the script. Esther and Mordecai, they're Jews, and they, they, they want to follow God, and they're trying to rewrite history's history of failure with one of new obedience. And they understand there's unfinished business with the Amalekites. And so when Esther asks for a second day, right, a second day of bloodshed, to chase down and, and, and kill those who sided with Haman, the Agagite, it's not venomous bloodlust that she's after. It's not, it's not hate that's fueling this in Esther. She's simply asking for permission to do what King Saul never did. She's going before the king of the land, King Xerxes, and asking him to give her explicit permission to carry out the command of God generations ago with King Saul. She wants to complete the task of holy war, to make war against them until you've wiped them out, 1 Samuel 15. And so you may object and be like, man, what about all those innocent lives, though? This, how does this square with the God of the Bible that we know to be a God of love and mercy? Well, there's a few things to think about here. First, there's no innocent people. Like, I think that's where we get off on our thinking is that we think, oh, these are just innocent people. These are innocent lives. They're, no, these are idolaters. These are rebellious people that have, that, have, that have said no to a holy God and have sinned against a holy God. There are no innocent people. We're not innocent people. And so the, 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 the wrath of a holy God rightly uh, is over us. It's on, on top of us and these people. Then second, you have to remember Genesis 15, 16. 
that there's a time coming, God said in Genesis 15, 16, where the iniquity of a people, of, and specifically the Amalekites, would be complete. Meaning that their immorality was complete and God's judgment was ready to be poured out. Again, God's judgment's not willy-nilly. He is calculated. And, and there's a point where he says the child sacrifice, the rape, the murder, the, the, the worship of idols, it has to end. My patience has went on long enough. And for the Amalekites, that time was now. And then third, and this is huge, the third thing you have to think here to, to offset our thinking is, is yes, every life, every soul is precious because it's created in the image of God. And so, yes, we speak up for life from the womb to the grave. Every life is precious because it's created in his image. Doesn't matter uh, race, color, ethnicity, what country you're from. What age you are, yes, every life is precious. And so we speak up for life in every sphere because we're champions for human life because God says life is precious. But, and here's the but, and we see this principle throughout the Old Testament, human life is not too high a price to pay for God's holiness. We see this over and over and over again. Human life is not too high a price to pay for God's holiness. He determines the payment and he determines when it's due. And so for the Amalekites, it was now. When's it going to be for you? I'm not sure. But we'll get to an answer. That that, that sadness, the doom, the darkness of that thought doesn't have to stay there. But that's what we see here. And even this gruesome act of publicly displaying the bodies of Haman's sons, even that is a part of tradition uh, tradition in in ancient warfare where the, 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 the conquering nation would say, this is what happens to you when you come against our king. This is what, publicly declaring, this is what happens to you when you rebel against our sovereign, right? For Israel, it's not that. It's not their king. This is what happens when you come against our God. This is what comes, when you plant your feet and, 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 and go against and rebel against a sovereign God, this is what happens. And so if you remember your Old Testament, that's the exact same fate that King Saul suffered. We talked about him just a second ago. He was humiliated on the walls uh, by the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 31. He and his sons. It's a mirror image of what happened to an Israelite king who disobeyed God and rebelled against his commands. Well, the great reversal has occurred. That change has happened. That holy war is happening in the book of Esther. It happens throughout the Old Testament. But what about us? How do we connect that to here and now? Well, there was holy war at Calvary. Praise God, there was holy war at Calvary. Don't miss this. I just told you, human life is not too high a price price to pay for God's holiness. And he has declared that because of his righteousness, the the rebellion of humanity, the, the, the rebellion of sinful humans, that sin must be dealt with. It can't be swept under the rug. It can't be just dismissed. It can't be ignored. It has to be punished because, now think about this, he's not a phony king like King Saul, the Israelite king. He's not a terrible, uh, crazed king like King Xerxes, the king of Persia. He's a perfect king. God is completely holy. So that means his justice is completely right and good and holy. And so he can't just ignore sin. He can't just ignore rebellion. And so all of this is finding its final expression. The, 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 the fighting that we see all the way back to Cain and Abel. Isaac and Ishmael, uh, the, the Israel and the Amalekites, King Saul and King Agag, Esther and Mordecai versus Haman. All of that age-old warfare leads us to the foot of the cross. Where Christ prosecutes uh, the, the climactic holy war against Satan himself. 
It's Colossians chapter 2. Verse 15, Colossians 2, verse 15, Paul says this. He, that's Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, the satanic powers, and put them to open shame like Haman and his sons being hung on the gallows. He, Jesus, puts the satanic powers to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And here's the beauty, the, the, the irony, the glory, the, the, the scandal of the cross is that Christ did that. He put Satan to open shame by hanging himself on the tree. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's Christ's holy war. Paul tells us that Christ triumphs over his enemies in the cross, that the instrument of death, that the instrument of execution was his triumph. His death was the victory. The execution device, our glory, leading to our eternal reward. Savor the the glory of the gospel, church family. That in Christ, he has executed holy war, but he did it in his own body. That he took our sin, that he took our rebellion. Then we should have rightly had the same fate as Haman and his ten sons. And yet Jesus, he allows that to be him. He goes to the cross for our sin. The defeat of the devil and his allies, both supernatural and human, is achieved at Calvary. Where neither Satan nor sinners, but Christ himself is made to share in Haman's cursed Fate as he hung upon a tree. This is the good news of the gospel. That you're Haman. That I am Haman. That we are Amalekites. That God's judgment has went out against us. The wicked ones. The sinful ones. The rebels. And God took our gallows. He took our noose. Or if you interpret this to be a a spike that was driven through their chest. It can be interpreted both ways. That was him on the tree. Not us. He's conquered our greatest enemy. Sin and death. This is the glory of the gospel. Well, there's a third aspect of holy war that we need to consider before we move on from it in the text. Hear me careful. There is, there is no way that we, America, are God's chosen special nation like Israel. And so we don't go executing people and nations in the name of God, though that's happened in history by America, by Christians, we don't have this mandate. We don't have a theocratic relationship with God like Israel did as an American citizen. But Paul tells us that we're not done with holy war. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says this, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the Christian life. Paul's laying out for us what should be our battle, what should be our war. And consider this, church, that unlike Esther, our conflict is not waged against against the backdrop of a king's failure. King Saul failed. Remember, that's why they're in exile in Persia to begin with. No, friends. We fight this battle. We go to war every day knowing that Christ has won the victory on Calvary. That changes our perspective in every way. We fight every day this battle against sin, this battle against the flesh and the devil, convinced that that, that Christ is one, that that the victory is already determined. And so we don't struggle with our flesh and temptations as one who might fail. No, it's been won. We don't doubt the final outcome. Some of you may, even right now as you hear this, be discouraged Uh, By the sin in your life, this battle that you have with a particular habit or sinful thing that you're drawn to, and over and over again you wrestle with it. Maybe you're discouraged by the society that we live in and and what's going on around us in culture. Maybe you're overwhelmed by a a particular vice that just recently has become a, a problem or a sin for you, and your conscience just stings 
as you long for deliverance from it. Maybe you cry out, Romans 7, 24, who can save me from this body of death? Maybe your outlook right now is, is, is one of gloom and you don't see the victory right now. Maybe you work in an office or on a job site with, uh, with people that, that ridicule you for being a believer, you church boy or Bible thumper, and, 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 and you feel beaten up almost every time you go to work or the office, and you wonder, can I continue in this? I hear you saying the victory is won. I hear you saying Christ has accomplished our victory, but it sure doesn't feel like it five days a week for me. Cling to Romans 16, 20. You can write that down. You can highlight it in your Bible. Put your bookmark there. Memorize it. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. It will happen. It is determined. He will crush the evil one. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, Paul says. So until that moment, when that final victory is complete, know that the end, the, the end is determined. It will happen. It will be accomplished. And if you believe that, then how do you respond? How do you respond to that vice, that sin, that temptation that you continually be entrapped in, to be, to be falling in, to be suffering in day after day after day? And repent. Repent. That sin that's lingering, repent. Charles Spurgeon said this, sin and hell are married until repentance proclaims the divorce. That's good. For you as a believer, there is nothing stopping you between, with having unity with, with your Savior. Repentance is there for you. Repent, confess your sins and run to Him. Don't give up and throw in the towel. Don't say I'm done. Don't feel discouraged. Fight on, pray on, love on. Keep on keeping on. The knowledge that sin and death, cynicism and, and unbelief, they're not going to win. Christ has already won. Let that bring incredible hope as you, as, you, as you fight your holy war this week in your own heart, in your own mind. Let's continue in the text. In verse 20, we'll continue reading. It says this, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. That they make them, make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against, them to destroy, uh, against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came uh, before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should be turned on its head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days, the celebration of feasting days, Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of, what, of, of all that is written in the letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obliged themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and that at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan province and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease from among their descendants second major observation here we saw holy war in the end of Esther now we see holy celebration in the end of Esther Mordecai records all these events in a letter 
mandating that the Jews observe this day of victory, celebrate with feasting and gifts from this time forward. And they named the, the celebration Purim after the, the dice, the pur. That's what they called them, uh, that, that Haman used. If you remember back in the beginning of the story, Haman used these dice and he cast them to determine which day he should execute all these Jews, right? Little did he know that God was using that, that very same dice to determine the day in which he would set Israel free. And so in that celebration, there's a couple things to note here. As we see holy celebration in Esther's ending, we see joy and gladness in Esther, and then we're going to see joy and gladness in light of the cross. Real quickly with me. The Jews celebrated this Purim, uh, and now they would continue to, even to this day, Jews still celebrate these, this, this event. And when they do that, they're doing two things, and we need to really see this as we make application. First, they're remembering, right? They're remembering the remarkable, that's what was told to us in the text that we just read. They're remembering the remarkable providence of God and his saving intervention. They're remembering the gift that he gave them, the gift of relief, verse 22. Uh, And that word relief is the idea of rest, right? This is a concept we saw often in our study of the book of Joshua. As we were going through that book, that they would fight and they would engage in battle. And little old Israel that should have never won these military victories came out victorious by God's grace and by his mercy. And it says that he gave them rest in the land. That's the same idea here. He's giving them relief and rest. And time and time again, like here in Esther, they rejoice. They rejoice in this rest as they remember what God has done. That's the first thing they're doing. They're remembering. They're remembering exactly the, the dice and the, the, the decree from Haman. They're remembering the bad things because the bad things make the good thing good, right? They're remembering. But then second, they're rejoicing. The month of Adar turned sorrow into gladness. When the month of Adar got there, it turned mourning into a holiday. And that day commemorated the victory, right? So it's a day of rejoicing and celebration. The plot that intended to destroy them became a festival that would unite them, Right? Little did they know that there's some years of conflict and trial and turmoil just around the corner for Israel, right? They didn't know that, but God knew it. And so he gives them, by his grace, this celebration of Purim that they could remember and rejoice how God had delivered them. So that when these dark times come just around the corner for them, they would be rejoicing his goodness in past. Now, I want to connect that. To our day, to our lives as believers, to us as the church today, even here at Poplar Spring. In many ways, the application, the big idea, right? The answer to the question, what in the world is the book of Esther for? It lies right here. Verses 20 through 28. The whole book can be summed up right here in this story that's told uh, by, by Mordecai. It's explained. It's, it's counted as, a, as, as holy scripture, the book of Esther. And the, and the reason is given to us right here. Esther is about remembering the saving grace of God and the rest that God provided and rejoicing in it. I'm going to say that again because that that really is the key to the book of Esther. Esther, the book of Esther, is about remembering the saving grace and rest of God that he provided and rejoicing in it. Now for us, today... This day, literally Sunday, and this gathering, the gathering of the body of Christ that we call church, this day is that the very same thing for us as believers. Let me do what I, I just, let me do something for you. I took that sentence and I repeated it for you. Let me take that very same uh, sentence and apply uh, New Testament lenses or gospel lenses to it. Sunday, the Lord's day, is about remembering the saving grace and rest that God provided and rejoicing in it, right? 
Sunday, what we do here as the body of Christ, when we gather as the church, is about remembering God's saving grace and the rest that he provided and rejoicing in it. That's why we've gathered. And if that's not why you're here, if that's not why you've gathered, then you've missed it. You've missed the whole point entirely. Sunday is not first and foremost to be evangelistic. Like, that's not the primary purpose. Like, I, I hope that people do. I hope that, that folks that don't know the Lord come, po- folks that don't have a relationship with Christ come and they hear the gospel because it should be preached every Sunday. That's what everything in Scripture is pointing us to is the climax, the gospel, so it should be preached. I pray that lost folks come. And he- but that's not why we've gathered. That's not first and foremost why we're here. We gather as God's people to celebrate the rest that he's provided from our greatest enemy, sin and death. And we celebrate that. We rejoice in that grace. That's why we've gathered on the first day of the week, right? When Jesus rose from the grave and death was undone and the stone was rolled away and life was brought to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we gather on Sundays, not Saturdays like the Jews did. And we gather to remember the victory and rejoice in it. Sunday, church, is our parim. Sunday is our festival day. Every week, not just on Easter, every week, it's our festival day. It's the day that we remember. It's the day of feasting in God's word, celebrating the victory he's won. That's why we cannot, right? When we, when we miss this, like we had for two months, the gathering of God's people, being in a room together, singing to King Jesus and studying his word together. That's why when we miss this, it should grieve us. Because no matter how hellish our week has been, no matter how strong temptation's been or how much the attack of the world has been, we come into this place and we celebrate the victories provided. That's why this is irreplaceable. That's why we cannot replace this gathering with some cheap substitute of an online version. We, we can, we can offer that, but it's not, a, it's not the same thing. It shouldn't be the same thing. It'll never be the same thing. Because there's something that God does when his people gather and celebrate the victory he's provided. And so if you think church is just this obligation, like, well, that's just what churchy people do. Or it's this boring thing that you have to do to make God happy. You've completely missed it. If it's just two hours that you could be at the lake, then you've missed it. You've never understood Sabbath. And I wonder if you've ever understood the rest that God provides from sin and death through his son's death on the cross. It's something that it's not something that we should rigidly have to do. It's something that we can't help but do. One final note here in the book of Esther, and we close. As we went long, as the book of Esther closes, look at verse 29. It says, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abiathel and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the, the second letter about Purim. And letters were sent out to all the Jews through the 127 provinces of the king of Ahas- kingdom of Ahasuerus, Words of peace and truth in the days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had obliged them, had obligated them, and as they uh, had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to the fasts and their lamenting. And the command of Esther confirmed that these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and he spoke peace to all his people. 
final observation we have this morning, and, and the final observation that we have in the book of Esther is that we are to fix our eyes on the true king in Esther's ending. Fix our eyes on the true king in Esther's ending. The book of Esther, even as a piece of literature, ends beautifully. As, as the whole book has been a beautiful piece of, of writing, the writer turns our gaze away from the, the, the celebration and the feasting and fixes our attention one more time, one last time, on the main characters, Esther and Mordecai. In verses 28 through 32, we see Esther, the true queen, that she's grown into this woman who is, is ruling and is mature, and she confirms Mordecai's decree, this, this decree about the, the Purim. And then in chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, we see Mordecai, the high honor and privilege that he has, the popularity that he has among the people. And Esther and Mordecai, here in the closing verses, just sort of have this almost messianic status. Like the, the last sights the author wants us to see are these, these two people that God has used in an incredible way to deliver his people, to redeem his people. But he can't quite do it. He can't quite do it. Did you notice that? There's, there's one off note in this beautiful song, this ending, this harmonious final song. It's, it's beautiful except for this one off note. And it's a, it's a loud off note. It's in verse 1 of chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his, Xerxes, power and might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? You see, even when talking about Mordecai, he's still only second in rank to King Xerxes. He's great among the Jews, but he's still not king. He's not supreme. He's still under an evil, evil king. And so we have to fix our eyes. The end of Esther is meant to fix our eyes on a better king. For all of Esther's bravery and all of her political power, for all of Mordecai's personal popularity, they remained under the rule of a tyrannical, crazy, lunatic king in Persia. He's still the final authority. He's still on the throne in Persia. And just like that, with all of the celebrating, with all of the feasting, with this explanation of Purim and these days of, of, of celebration, the author drops this one little piece of trash into the apple pie, right? Don't get carried away, Israel. <laughs> don't, don't think this is it. This isn't the final victory, Israel. The true Savior hasn't come yet. This, this, is, this is not the end. A better king is what you need. You have to look for a better king. Wait for him. And so that's how we leave this book, too. This is what this book has taught us. It's a call to look to a better king. A, a look to a, 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 the king who would come and, and, and deal with our greatest enemy. Not just for, for temporary times and, and for a season, but eternally. We look to Christ, the author and the, the perfecter of our faith. The one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. No mere man or woman could do. We needed the Son of God, and he came. So don't put your trust, don't put your value, don't put your worth, don't put your, your, your faith in your job or your spouse or your kids or yourself. Satisfying or fulfilling or bringing uh, content or, or something to fill a void in your life. None of those things can bear the weight. We need a better king. And only the true Savior, Jesus Christ, is that king. So fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on him. That's, that's the resonating tone that we're left with in the book of Israel, uh, of, of, of Esther. Is we need a better king, and one came, and he traded places with you so that you're not on the gallows. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning, that even in a book like this in Esther, written thousands of years ago, you speak loudly and clearly. God, the, the glimpses and shadows and, and yearnings of the gospel are there for us to feed on. For, for us to see and celebrate. 
So thank you for a true and better king that came and traded places with us. God, I pray that for your people in this room and in the fellowship hall and in the parking lot listening and in the radio and, and on the, the, the front lawn of the church, God, for your church that's still separated by maybe walls and space, that God, together right now in this moment, we would be unified and in one heart and mind, believing and confessing that today is our Purim, that today is our festival day because you have conquered the grave, that today we celebrate an empty tomb, that Christ is no longer dead and buried, but he is alive and he's conquered death. Help us to never, ever get over that truth and that reality. And God, if there's one here this morning that's never experienced the saving grace of God that you offer through Christ, they're still in their sin. God, I pray today would be a day of repentance. That right now, even as I'm praying, that you would bring them by your kindness to a place of repentance where they confess, I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. I am like Haman and the Amalekites that I, I have sinned against a holy God. And that right now they would see their need for a Savior and that Savior being Christ alone. God, would you be honored in our time as we respond uh, this week, as we take these commands of Scripture and, and march them out in practical ways in our workplaces, in our homes, our neighborhoods. Would Christ be honored in the lives of his people? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.